This is District Sentinel Radio, the loudest newscast on the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of the Internate is not a worker studios in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. So, our Sentinel Radio summer vacation has begun. Starting today. Wait, hold on. Now it's starting, right now. Well, actually, when we're done recording this, it's starting. We'll be back two weeks from now on August 27th, bringing you that uh, daily newscast content. Fortunately, we're still releasing daily audio content, including some new stuff and unlocking old interviews so you have something to listen to while we're gone. Also, a new edition of the zine. A new edition of the zine will be coming out at the end of the week for our Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash district sentinel. So there will be print content to look forward to as well. I'd say it is, though, a shame that we're taking a break at a time like this. In fact, uh, here's a headline I saw just today as we were walking into the studio. This is from Mediate, quote, Trump retweets Michael Cohen refuting Omarosa claim that Trump ate paper. This is uh, this is big news. Big news here, indeed. So does this mean Michael Cohen hasn't flipped? <laughs> I guess so. Although it is not a crime to eat paper. Unless you somehow lie about it. Yes, unless you're destroying a, evidence. Well, that, yeah, there's that. It, it, it could be, I, I guess we should revise that statement. It could be a crime to eat paper. Yeah, I was totally wrong about that. <laughs> Anyways, madness aside, the left is winning, folks. We are, I think. <laughs> there was a Gallup poll today that uh, shows that more Democrats, or or sorry, I should say Democrats, a higher percentage of Democrats view uh, socialism favorably than view capitalism favorably. It was like 57% view socialism favorably. Nice. 47% view capitalism favorably. I count that as a win. Which, as someone pointed out, I guess that means there's some overlap between certain people who told the pollsters they view both socialism and capitalism I know exactly favorably. who those people are. So there's that. I, I think it's more of that America is ready to be more like Canada. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> than anything. Um, I don't think they're embracing the Sentinel Boys definition of uh, socialism. No, but, that's but okay. it's still a, it's a we'll step it's a step in the right direction. And what's up with the 16 percent of Republicans saying they like socialism? Saying they like socialism. It's, it's I don't know. It's it's truly truly bizarre shit. I imagine it uh, dovetails with Republicans who also say they like Bernie Sanders or say they like yeah, maybe they Social say Security or something. I don't know. Maybe it's like one of those uh, 12D chess things where like, oh, we love socialism because it's going to wreck the Democratic Party. Could be. Even though Could they're be. wrong. Although I, I, I don't think it was that kind of poll. I don't think it was... It, it, I, I think the poll is not designed for 13-dimensional chess, right. believe it or not. Uh, update on Elon Musk, too. This whole saga. That's right. He came out with a post today. I believe it was a, of a blog variety. Some, <laughs> someone at uh, Tesla convinced him not to come out with this on Twitter. 
that he should maybe do it in a post, which was probably uh, best for the company. <laughs> anyway, he w- he was justifying his tweet about how the uh, uh, about how he has a, a secured private funding for his buyout. And he says it's related to the Saudis because the Saudis are the ones who've been talking for years about potentially buying out um, Tesla and taking it private with presumably he would still be CEO because you know he would do whatever the Saudis tell him. Yeah. Uh, Also news that Elon Musk maybe was on acid tweeting this last weekend. Yeah. Tweeting some really weird shit. Yeah. Yeah. We are uh, really looking forward to checking back in on all of this stuff in two weeks, particularly the Elon Musk stuff. In the meantime, here's the first of our unlocked interviews. This from back in May when we talked with community organizer and sex worker advocate Kate Diadamo about the effects of recently passed legislation intended to crack down on illegal sex trafficking, but that's actually making women's lives more dangerous. So on the ground, the law actually started having an impact even before it was signed. Um, And what we're seeing is that, you know, because what the law did was hugely expand civil liability without any clarity on how to obey the law, um, we saw websites uh, across the spectrum either shut down completely or change how they were operating to try to uh, assume that they were facing less liability. And so the impact of that has been that uh, because a lot of times we were talking about websites that were where people advertised for the sex trade online, where people met clients online, what we're seeing is people uh, who've lost access to that moving into spaces that they've kind of already either rejected or left beforehand. And so that means people moving into street-based work, people moving into other areas of the industry, whether that's you know into brothels or We've seen a lot of uh, third parties reach out and say, you know, you need me to find you clients now, uh, and really recognizing the precarity of people who worked online. And there is uh, evidence that this is already harming people, is there not? I mean, I've heard reports that sex workers, there's reports that um, sex workers have, uh, not that, not to say that violence against sex workers did not happen before FOSTA was signed into law, but Anecdotally, people have, have, have been saying that there's been something of an increase. Yeah, um, you know, because this is happened so quickly, um, we're trying to get more information. Uh, but a lot of the anecdotal reports across the country are very consistent. Um, first and foremost, people very quickly lost housing. Um, you know, unfortunately, the bill passed a week before uh, rent was due. And so if you're talking about... <clears throat> the very end of the month when people are, are trying to make sure that they're able to make rent to keep the lights on, um, that was decimated. And so a lot of people are uh, couch surfing and living out of cars now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had increased reports of missing persons, um, so people who were um, taking a bit more risk, and unfortunately uh, their friends and their communities have lost track of them. Um, and we have uh, seen... You know, reports of violence definitely increase because what you're talking about when people work online is there's a buffer between you and the person that you're going to meet. You're able to screen. You're able to talk to them. You're able to negotiate a lot easier than when you're in kind of a rushed one-on-one situation, you know, looking out of the side of your eye to see if there's someone who wants to cause you harm coming up. And the other thing that you're talking about is 
being able to make a plan to see that person in a much more controlled setting. And so that means being able to screen if that person has uh, enacted violence on other sex workers previously and knowing where you're going to, being able to have a person maybe waiting downstairs, being able to call someone in front of that client to say, hey, I'll be out in an an hour and I'm going to call you to let you know that I'm safe, to know that there's someone else looking out for you. All of those things don't exist when you can't work online. And so, well, you know, the sex trade is not inherently violent no matter where you work, but all of the things that increased vulnerability to violence are amplified when you're engaged in street-based work or when you're reliant on another person to make ends meet. Like with so many things that Congress takes on, it doesn't quite have the knowledge of the issue to effectively legislate it. You see it a lot with technology issues. You saw it at hearings uh, regarding Facebook, where you have lawmakers who just don't know what they're talking about. The, The purpose of this legislation, ostensibly, is to take on trafficking and Lawmakers have gone about doing that by conflating uh, human trafficking with sex work that women engage in on their own choice. Uh, So, I I mean, how is this another example of here we have members of Congress who just don't know what they're doing? Yeah, this is definitely an example of them getting a lot of information from a lot of people who actually are not seeing the impact of this bill and valuing intention much more than how it was going to play out. You know, sex workers were the ones saying, you know, this is going to close down websites. This is going to force me to work on the street. This is going to force me to work in ways that aren't safe. This is going to compromise my life and my health and my safety and that of my community. And guess what? A month later, sex workers were right. And so, you know, it is really hard for any marginalized community to go and to sit down with their policymakers. When was the last time you saw... a a bill on housing or food stamps, and the people sitting in front of Congress giving testimony were people on food stamps, people who are on Section 8. It's much more likely, and especially when you're talking about the sex trade, I mean, it's great that you bring in Ashton Kutcher. That's a fun thing to watch, but let's not pretend like we're talking to experts. And, you know, sex workers are regularly left out of the conversation, absolutely ignored, maligned for even speaking up. You know, I still am seeing it where sex workers are coming forward and saying, you know, this has caused violence. This is leading to the deaths of my family and my community. And the answer is, why don't you get another job? And so, you know, this stigma and the deep disrespect and the incredible dehumanization is something that... um, has to be addressed if we're going to talk to the actual experts on these issues, which are the people who are living through them, and more importantly, the people who are going to live through them tomorrow. They're not the people who have left the industry. They're, it's about talking to the people who say, as soon as this bill passes, my life will change. And that change isn't that I have to write a different op-ed or maybe donate to a different cause. And this is going to practically damage my ability to stay alive. One of the uh, more disappointing aspects of this bill's passage uh, fr- from critics' standpoint is the fact that Democrats pretty much lined up uh, almost unanimously. I mean, there were there were uh, uh, there was Ron Wyden in the Senate. I think he was the only one in the Senate uh, who voted against it. And there's something like eleven Democrats in the House uh, who voted against it. 
Uh, you have 2020 presidential hopefuls all voting for it. Bernie Sanders, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. Why do you think this happened? And do you think that it's possible for Democrats to evolve, uh, so to speak, on sex worker protection? Um, you know, if I didn't believe that there was an opportunity to involve, I should just go back to bed. Right. Um, you know, I think that I think that it points out a glaring gap when it comes to the way we talk about not just sex work. I think that you know, talking about real economic justice and especially economic justice in the context of criminal justice reform is something that the Democratic Party in general really needs to wrap its head around first and foremost. You know, I, I am taking this opportunity to go and to sit down with Cory Booker's office and to say, you know, there's clearly a hole in your knowledge. Let's figure out how to get you to fill that. And bringing, you know, these stories and these voices of the incredible impact that this has, you know, the story of trafficking is a very compelling story. The reality of trafficking is a very different story, and it's a much harder story to legislate on, because ultimately you're talking about addressing the vulnerabilities that are pushing people into often spaces where exploitation is normalized. When we talk about, you know, trafficking into the sex trade, it's a very real problem, and it's completely grounded on the fact that we have normalized violence and exploitation of people that trade sex, and we're comfortable with it. And so... You know, I think that absolutely the Democrats can come around. And I think it is part of a reckoning that has already started, that has started in conversations around Black Lives Matter and, you know, control of or police accountability and thoughtfulness to what real serious economic change means. And, you know, this is just one part of that story. It is, <laughs> I'm a sex worker rights organizer, so this is my, like, my part of the story. Um, but I, I absolutely think that, you know, FOSTA and SESTA passing in the moment where we are really seriously having these conversations, often for the first time, and looking at people like Kamala Harris and like Cory Booker and saying, we love how far you've gotten, but it's very clear that for you to effectively serve the most marginalized folks that you represent, you've got to go farther. Because look at what's happening when you don't pay attention to these marginalized groups. Well, uh, Democrats tend to take a little bit longer to evolve than we'd like them to. So in the meantime, as someone who's on the ground and an advocate for individuals who are affected by this legislation, what advice do you have for them how to navigate their lives right now? Um, for folks that are sex workers or folks that are allies? Uh, sex workers. Every time I... I go and I sit with community members and, and we talk about these things, I think first and foremost, recognizing the incredible resilience that it means to be a sex worker in and of itself is one of the most beautiful things about this community, that it is an entire community of people who are determined to survive. And, you know, people are going to scramble for a while. I've been telling everyone, you know, diversify your income. We actually don't know what websites are going down. Um, Build community, build relationships one-on-one -on -one with people so you do have that safety net um, so that, you know, you can ask your friends for advice, ask people for what's going on, ask people to support you and and try to, you know, build these, strengthen and build um, these community spaces and these relationships to each other. Um, 
everyone should read their terms of service very clearly. Um, a lot of places, you know, it's, if, if cutting liability means kicking off everyone they think is a sex worker, then read the terms of service very clearly and don't put a, a red flag anywhere on your information. Um, and, you know, there's a, a number of different conversations happening about different ways to work and, and different places to go. Know that there's harm reduction information for all of those things. There are tips out there for spotting bad management, for working in a club or in a massage parlor or a brothel. Um, you know, there's tips out there if you want to do cam work or work online. Um, there's nothing about this that doesn't involve different harm reduction techniques if you if um, you go look for them. And then the very last thing I think the most important thing is that a lot of people are changing how they're working. Um, they don't feel comfortable screening. They feel like they have to take every client, even if they get a bad feeling. And, you know, make the decision you have to survive. Figure out how to survive in the best way that works for you. And if something goes wrong, even if you changed what you were usually doing, where you tried to do all the best practices, where you didn't feel comfortable doing best practices, it's fine. And that doesn't actually validate the experiences of violence and exploitation that people are having right now and know that when there is violence, it doesn't matter if you didn't screen, it didn't matter if you didn't put that person, you know, through the rigorous techniques that you do, if you met that person online, if you were intoxicated, whatever it is, that violence is still not your fault. And there is support out there and there are communities out there who understand that and are willing to hold that space um, for you and for your healing. One last question, Kate. Uh, we were talking brief, where we've mentioned and, and, and discussed how uh, FOSTA really kind of sets a dangerous precedent beyond just the sex work industry uh, in terms of the sort of self censorship and just outright censorship it's uh, creating through the uh, amendments to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. I was just wondering, do you have any hope that? maybe the courts will throw this out, throw out the laws being unconstitutional, that is? I mean, I do. I think, you know, not only is this a really uh, problematic law in terms of, you know, it has, a, it, it has a, a clause that makes it retroactive, so behavior that wasn't criminalized is all of a sudden now civilly liable. I mean, mm. it's, it's a terribly written law. It is completely overbroad. The fact that there is no clarity on how to obey the law, that this level like this level of self-censorship should be an indicator that this was a very clear mistake. And so, you know, I, I definitely leave it up to the courts, and I want, I want this to be a flag for everyone. Um, this law didn't necessarily, well, part of the law created a brand new federal crime, but the other part of the law, all it did was increase liability, but it's predicated on criminalization that already exists. You know, sex workers knew what was going to happen because sex workers are used to getting kicked off platforms. It's, it was only a couple years ago that Rent Boy went down, that my red book before that went down, and people moved onto the street. You know, we know exactly how this happens. And I hope this is a moment where a lot of people who felt really safe from the law had to and have to understand that, you know, Communities and folks are criminalized in myriad different ways. And so let's say 230 gets pulled off the books. Let's say that civil liability is gone. People in the sex trade are still going to be arrested, and they're still going to be criminalized, and they're still going to have the incredible impact of what that means as, you know, compromising lives and safety. And so I, I think it's an incredibly important moment. I think the tech industry just got scared. Um, 
And I hope that if this bill goes away, they don't forget that feeling and recognize that, you know, when your users can't access platforms because they're criminalized, that stifles the most important forms of innovation because the people who are, you know, necessity breeds the most incredible innovation. And it was sex work and, uh, you know, the adult industry that created so many of the advancements that we take for granted right now. I mean, who was really using credit card processors first? Who was really talking about streaming first? You know, we create these these bad gate lists and whisper networks and, and different forms of safety, and that is predicated on people needing it. And so I hope the tech industry realizes that if they care about innovation and about understanding the way technology is playing out in people's lives, looking and understanding at how criminalization is impacting that should be a really, really big red flag moving forward. The oldest profession also still innovating in uh, the 21st century. Uh, Kate Diadamo, community organizer, sex worker advocate, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking about this. That's the show. Remember, regular episodes of District Sentinel Radio resume on August 27th. We'll be back in D.C. so you don't have to be. Mm.